Our scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. After these things, the Lord commissioned 72 others and sent them on ahead in pairs to every city and place he was about to go. He said to them, The harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest. Go, be warned, though, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Carry no wallet, no bag, no sandals. Do not greet anyone along the way. Whenever you enter a house, first say, may peace be on this house. If anyone shares God's peace, then your peace will rest on that person. If not, your blessing will return to you. Remain in the house, eating and drinking whatever they set before you, for workers deserve their pay. Don't move from house to house. Whenever you enter a city and its people welcome you, eat what they set before you. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, God's kingdom has come near, excuse me, has come upon you. Whenever you enter a city and the people don't welcome you, go out into the streets and say, a complaint, as a complaint against you, we brush off the dust of your city that is collected on our feet. But know this, God's kingdom has come to you. I assure you that, on, that Sodom will be better off on judgment day than that city. How terrible it will be for you, Chorizon, how terrible for you, Bethsaida. If these miracles done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have changed their hearts long time ago. They would have sat around in funeral clothes and in ashes. But Tyre and Sidon will be better off at the judgment than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be honored by rising up to heaven? No, you will be cast down to the place of the dead. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned joyously saying, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I lost the third page. (laughs) Sorry, the the page number says three of two. Not a problem. I just got confused for a second there. All right. So uh, for those of you who are in Sunday school, it's exciting because this passage of scripture takes place not many verses after what we studied this morning. Uh, the, the book of Luke chapter nine is a very kind of pivotal moment in the gospel of Luke, because at the beginning of chapter nine, this is what happens. We are told that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. So Luke is really built up into kind of three different parts, right? There's the beginning of Luke, which is sort of Jesus Galilean ministry where he's kind of home base, Capernaum, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's chapter nine and that, that kind of seeks as a transition from, from, uh, from home base to travelogue. And we get this kind of Jesus moving from, from uh, Capernaum, from Galilee down kind of into Jerusalem. And then the remainder of the book is Jesus' kind of time in Jerusalem, the betrayal, the the passion, the resurrection. 
So, so at nine, we're told, Luke says, he set his face toward Jerusalem, which, which tells us that, that, that the shift in Jesus' ministry is sort of from building ministry to now I'm headed towards Jerusalem, towards final destiny, towards death, resurrection, all that sort of stuff that goes on in Jerusalem. It is a pitiful moment because Jesus sort of hones in on what must be done before his death. And so we can kind of read everything between nine and the end of the book as the things Jesus sees that need to be accomplished, that must must happen that must occur before he is crucified, resurrected, and ultimately ascends into heaven. And as part of that, what Jesus begins to do is sending out his disciples. So in chapter 9, we see Jesus send out 12 disciples who come back, report success. Uh, then what happens in, in, in our Sunday school lesson this morning, right? Jesus goes up on the mountain and is transfigured. And, and three of his disciples see him in his heavenly glory and kind of have this aha movement of, of Jesus standing with, with the great patriarchs, like with, with Moses and Elijah. Right, it's a, it's a pivotal moment, it's a big thing. Jesus is, is revealed to his disciples, at least these three, in all of, of his glory. And then Jesus begins to predict his death, which really bums out the disciples and predicts his resurrection. And then we come to chapter 10, where Jesus gets his disciples together, not just the 12 this time, but a larger group, 72 of them were told, and begins to prepare and then ultimately send them out to do the work of ministry in all the places he intends to go. So if you have Galilee up in the north and Jerusalem kind of south-central Israel, right? Jesus has to make his way down there. And so what he does, he takes these 72 and he says, all the places I'm going to go, all the places we're going to go through on our way to Jerusalem, I want you to go. Essentially, he's sending them ahead. they're, They're the advance team, right? To go out and begin to prepare the people to receive the message of the coming kingdom of God. Ultimately, he's preparing them to receive the message of the crucified and risen Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. And so he sends them out. Before he does, however, he gives them sort of this this speech. He says, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the fields. Uh, What Jesus recognized about this time, about what's occurring right then, right there, and what will occur even after his death and resurrection is that this will be something that is life-changing, that is world-changing, that is an immediate need for those who will hear it. And he likens it to a harvest. I am not a farmer. I have never been a farmer. I wasn't raised by farmers. But I think I understand that when the grain is ripe, you need to harvest it quickly or at least in a timely manner. Timely manner, is that better, Regan? Okay. Regan was raised by farmers, so he knows these things. He's my go-to on on all farm knowledge. But again, in the times, especially before sort of mechanical uh, bringing in of the harvest, it took a lot of people to accomplish the work in a timely manner. Right? And so Jesus is comparing this. This is a a metaphor that they would have understood. Um, Harder for us, but it's a metaphor they would have understood. Right? It's ready. The fields are ready. And when the fields are ready, you begin the harvest. And when the fields are ready, you begin the harvest and you need workers to accomplish that. But Jesus tells his disciples, even this 72, even the kind of the larger group that may have been around him, that it's not enough, that we need more. And he says, the harvest is so big that it's beyond all of us. So pray to God that God would send more people 
Which is interesting because the disciples are also, are the prayer, right? They're to pray to the Lord of the harvest, but they're also the answer because Jesus next sends them out. They are the workers that they are praying for. Just as an aside, we are the workers that we pray for, by the way. But Jesus gives some sort of weird instructions to them as he sends them out. First, he says this, which is really encouraging. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Not a great start, not a big confidence builder, but Jesus is honest, right? He has before told his disciples to count the cost of what it means to follow after him. And here he's just being honest, right? They have seen how he is treated by some people and and he tells them to expect no better. As as he was treated and, and is treated poorly by some people, they are to expect that this will happen as well for them. They they are going and they are bringing a message that is not always pleasing to the ear. The gospel is always good news, but it is not always pleasing to us at the beginning because it confronts us with some things like we may not be as good a people as we thought we were, or we might have sin in our lives that we need to confess that we are not in charge of our own destiny, but rather we are people who are under a God. It's not always a popular message. And Jesus wants to be honest with his disciples about that very fact. I'm sending you out like sheep or like lambs among wolves. For those of you who don't know nature, wolves eat sheep. Okay? If you go to Montana, there's a big deal about wolves eating the sheep. It's just the way things are. It has not yet come the time where the lambs lie down with the wolves as Isaiah says, or as we see in Revelation. It is a time of turmoil. The kingdom has not come, but the kingdom is near. And Jesus begins to speak to them about the urgency of what they're doing and about the manner in which they are to do it. And and this is kind of strange stuff. Jesus essentially says, go, but don't pack anything. Don't take your wallet. Other, other, uh, other gospels will say, don't take an extra cloak, don't take this, don't take a staff for the journey, nothing. Basically, he says, go, but don't pack, right? Don't bring anything with you. All you ahead planners, all you people who love to pack a week in advance, make sure everything, you know, you have enough clothes for every situation. He basically says, this is so urgent, you are to go, and you are to go just with the clothes on your back. More than just urgency there, though, Jesus is talking about the kind of of ministry and the way they are to go about staying with people, financing their ministry. He essentially says, you are to go, but you are to go completely reliant on the hospitality of other people. Right? Kind of brings back the sheep among wolves metaphor, right? Wolves have teeth and speed and fur, and they're pretty ferocious and can take care of themselves. Lambs, sheep, I mean, they're great and all, but they're just not that smart, and they don't fight back, really. And and so Jesus is comparing. He's he's saying, you're you're going out like sheep among wolves. You're you're going completely dependent on on the hospitality, on the friendship, on the care of the people who are around you. The people who you will encounter out there. Again, a little scary. Sheep among wolves, but go and and be defenseless. You can't even pay for your bus fare is essentially what he's saying. And so he's saying, go into these towns and simply walk in, go to the first house you see, knock on the door and say, peace be with you. 
Again, sounds a little strange to us. If someone knocked on my door and just peace be with you, I, I think I'd like, okay, maybe they're talking about this scripture, but it, it'd be kind of confusing. What's going on here? How's this working? The first century is a little bit different. It was okay. There was a little more hospitality going on, but, but essentially they were to go and they would say, peace be with you. And, and, and Jesus essentially says, if, if that person sort of has sort of a kindred spirit and, and is hospitable and is welcoming and says, peace be on you, then you are to go and your peace remains on that house. You are to go and you're to stay there and you're just to eat whatever's set before you. Stick around as long as you like. Stay there. Don't move around. Don't look for a better deal. Go to the first place that will welcome you and walk in the door and stay there. For some of us who are hosts who say, you know, two, three days, I'm all right. Get longer than that. You know, I'm ready for you to leave. But, but that's, again, the, the hospitality of the first century is different. But he says, go and, and be reliant on the hospitality of people. And, and, and inherent in this, in this sending is the, is the assurance that people will be hospitable. Right? Saying if they welcome you, go in, your peace will remain on that house. Of course, oddly, he says, if they don't welcome you, your peace will come back to you and just go on to the next place. It's strange, but... But Jesus begins to talk about this and to go and... And if, and if you're welcomed in a city, he says, go and, and heal the sick and proclaim that the kingdom of God is near you or the kingdom of God has come upon you. The, the kingdom of God language would have resonated in a first century Jewish audience. They're waiting for the coming, the fullness, the culmination of the kingdom of God. And, and so they're to go and, and to be with, with these houses and in these cities and, and, and to go and do works that are, for them, indicative of the coming and, and present kingdom of God, right? We see Jesus did this. He held, healed the sick. He, he cast out demons, right? He did these things not just as ends and of themselves, but as signs that the kingdom had come near, that the kingdom was upon them. It would have been good news to the people when they saw these things, they would have resonance of this is God's working in and among us and, and that the truthfulness of the statements that the disciples make. You're going to say the kingdom of God has come near you because ultimately the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Again, if we're talking preparation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ as he comes through town, the, the, the mindset here is if they welcome you, they will welcome me. If they welcome me, they will welcome the one who sent me. Jesus says, you were to go and proclaim salvation, the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel, wherever you go. If they accept it, huzzah, right? That's what Jesus said. If they accept it, great, wonderful, good. If they don't accept it, sounds kind of harsh, but it basically says, let them not accept it and leave town. But also, as you leave town, say to them as well, the kingdom of God has come near. It's interesting how that particular phrase lands differently, depending on how you hear it. Right? For those who accept it, it's good news. It is life. It is future. For those who don't accept it, it becomes warning and even lament. The kingdom of God has come near with the implication that the kingdom of God is near you, still near you, but you are rejecting it. I, I, I liken this as I was thinking about this this morning. I, I, I heard in the back of my mind after reading that particular passage, you know, shake the dust off your feet as a sign against you, but say still that the kingdom of God has come near. I, in my mind, the, the phrase of when Jesus marches or overlooks Jerusalem and he begins to weep and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have killed the prophets. If only you had known for the things that would make for peace. Peace. 
right? This lament over them. And I, I hear that in Jesus saying to his disciples, if they reject it, still say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you, but it's a lament, it's sorrow because salvation was near and it was rejected. Jesus then goes into some big stuff and talks about how uh, if, if they re- reject you, I mean, it's better for Tyre and Sidon on those days. Tyre and Sidon were not seen as good places, right, um, for them than those who rejected you. If, if the deeds had been done in Tyre, and, or in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. All this stuff, Jesus begins to talk about the dangers and, and the consequences of rejecting the message that the disciples are coming to bring. Right? It's a woe. It's sorrow. What strikes me about this particular passage, which makes me really uncomfortable as someone who likes routine, likes itinerary, likes to know what's going on, is that Jesus says, you're to go, throw the itinerary out the door, and just preach. If there's something that's very, very difficult for me to do, it's throw the itinerary out the door and just go with it. I don't just go with it very well. Sometimes I hide it, but it's hard. My routine gets disrupted. But that's essentially what he's saying. Stay as long as you feel you need to stay. Stay as long as the spirit directs. And stay as long as they'll have you. When they kick you out, leave. Right? I don't know. That might be what it is. Right? When the people are tired of you in their house, leave. Go somewhere else. But, but for all of this, what, what really intrigues me at the end kind of that is when Jesus says to them, remember, if they reject you, they're not really rejecting you. Don't take it personal. Don't call down fire from heaven on them. You can shake dust off your feet. That's one thing. But calling down fire is a completely different thing. That's what the disciples were prone to do when people rejected what Jesus was doing. He says, Quietly shake the dust off your feet. Remind them the kingdom of God is near. But remember that they aren't rejecting you. They're rejecting me, he says. And when they reject me, he says, they're rejecting the one who sent me. Which is more cause for sorrow than anger, in my opinion? Right? I get angry when people reject me. I wish I were better at it, but I'm not. I'm not at this point. I'm getting better. It makes me frustrated, it makes me angry, it makes me defensive. And when preaching the gospel, it makes me frustrated and angry and defensive when people reject what I say. Or people reject the gospel. But I have to remember, they're not rejecting me. It's not personal against me. They're, they're saying no to Jesus, and they're saying no to God. And, and that is not, for me, cause for anger. That is cause for deep, deep sorrow and lament. Where I would love if everyone accepted. Wouldn't it be great if no one said no to Jesus? That's how I read this. Not, not, not as Jesus saying, you know, curse those cities, but saying, remember, they've rejected the things that are life. And that is cause for deep lament and sorrow. We're not really told many of the details of what happens as the disciples are out doing their thing, right? There's 72 of them. They go out. We're not told how long they're gone. We're not told where they meet back up. We're not told anything other than they go out and then they come back. So they go out and they come back and Jesus has this, this powwow with his disciples again and he's sitting down with them and the disciples are pumped, 
right? They, they come back and they're just excited. They're overjoyed. They're saying, Jesus, guess what happens? The demons even submit to us. I mean, they're just psyched. Jesus, look at, at how powerful we are. Look, we, we did what you do. Like we, we, we were overcoming the king of darkness, right? We're, we're, we're on it. They're excited about these deeds of power that were done in the name of Jesus. They're excited about all this stuff that happens and they're rejoicing in that. And they're talking about that. Do you notice what is perhaps absent from their report? The demons submit to us. How many people accepted the message? Were they hospitable? Did they hear and receive the word? Did they live the word? Quite frankly, what we see here is, is natural to, to humanity. We, we get excited about the flashy, the deeds of power, right? The control, the, the things that we can do. Look what happened when we commanded the demons. They came out. People found freedom in that way. We're excited about the flashy things, the power, the authority that we have. And in all honesty, that's not untrue. The disciples have these, these power, this authority over demons, over sickness. They're told to cure the sick, right? All this stuff happens and Jesus doesn't deny it. In fact, what Jesus says is, you're right. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, I don't think we're supposed to take that literally, that Satan literally fell out of heaven like lightning. But think of the visual here. Right? Jesus is saying, you're right. The kingdom of darkness was shaken as you were out there doing your thing. And that is good. That is cause for rejoicing. That is cause for, for being happy. You are given that authority. You have been given the authority to tread on snakes. All that sort of stuff that, that, that is weird. Like that no harm will come to you. All that sort of stuff that Jesus says. That's great. That's good news. That is part of what it means to follow me and to be sent and empowered by my spirit. But what Jesus reminds his disciples is what is most important is not these deeds of power. They are good. They are to be celebrated. But they are means to an end. A deed of power without a response towards Jesus remains just a deed of power. Jesus says, do not rejoice that the demons submit. Rather, he says, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That your names are written in heaven. Jesus sometimes seems like he's pouring cold water on the excitement of the disciples, right? Demons submit to us. Hurrah. Huzzah. Jesus celebrates that with them. Satan falling like lightning. Pretty cool metaphor. Of what happens when the people of God are doing God things. But Jesus seeks to remind them of a couple points. First is that those deeds of power are a means to an end. The authority we might have in Christ that we're told we have by the spirit is a means to an end. It is not the power we celebrate. It is the salvation that God gives because the power is not ours. The power is bestowed. The power is given, but it does not belong to us and we don't deserve it. Certainly. It's not about the power. It's about the message. What is the message? God's reconciliation with humanity. 
that God is reconciling all things to God's own self. Rejoice not that the demons submit to you, but that your name, he says to his disciples, is written in heaven. As a reminder, that the gift of salvation is not the power. It's not our power anyway. The gift of salvation is a gift to them as much as it is to us. That is, we are no more deserving of it than anyone around us. What we're to rejoice about as Christians, what matters most for us as followers of Jesus is not the deeds in and of themselves, but rather that God is reconciling all things to God's own self. That the message of Christ is given to the world. That that we have received the message of Christ and have our names written in heaven. And that our job is to go out and if we have power, if we have authority, all of that is to the end of helping others hear, receive, and accept the message. That God is for them and desires to reconcile them to God's own self in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What strikes me about this is we often seek to accomplish the salvation by the power, right? The deeds of power, we sort of equate that with the salvation. Or we live into the power, the authority. I can tell you what to do and how to do it. We live into the, I've been gifted in this way by the spirit and I am able to exercise that in any way I want. We live into the power and sometimes forget the reason the power exists, The power exists for the purpose of the gospel. Power is not an end in of itself. Authority is not an end in of itself. Those things are to be used and stewarded so that people may hear and receive the gospel as a sign of God's goodness and grace, not a sign of other things. So a couple things I want to just bring it to a close with today. First of all, the harvest is still plentiful. And the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that, that he will send out workers into his harvest field. We need more workers. Second, you are the answer to that prayer you pray. When I pray to the Lord of the harvest, I'm not saying, God, I pray that you would send all of them and let me stay at home. I I pray that you would send Larry, but not me. Or send Sheldon, but not me. I'm good here. I'm more of a management type. Part of that prayer is to say, wait a minute. After Jesus tells his disciples to pray that prayer, he says, now go. Go into the harvest field. You are part of that answer. And third, let us remember, because it grounds and centers us, that the reason we are sent, and any power, any authority, anything that we have, is because it is a free gift of God for the purpose that others might hear the gospel. I received the gospel not because I deserved it, I heard the gospel not because I am better than anyone. God has saved me not because I deserve it any more than anyone else. 
God has saved me because I need it just like everyone else. This is not my act. It is the gift of God, lest any person should boast. And so as we hear the call to go into the harvest field, let us remember. Let us remember that. We are sent not because we're awesome. You all are awesome, by the way. But that's not why you're sent. You're sent and empowered so that others might hear. And so don't rejoice in the power you've been given. Don't let that be your motivation. Let your motivation be that your name is written in heaven. Let your motivation be that the God of the universe said that I, you, we, meant enough to him that God sent God's one and only son to suffer and to die that we might find life. Not because we deserve it, but because we could not get there ourselves. I cannot work my way or power my way or authority my way or legislate my way or any other thing my way to salvation. I cannot will, power, exert, legislate anyone else's way to salvation. Believe that or not. I only receive salvation. You only receive salvation because of the free gift of God in Christ. Because of what Jesus has done. And as Paul says, if we boast in anything, let us boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Not our work. Not our power. But God's. For God demonstrates God's love for us and for everyone else in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were incapable of finding God, God made a way for us to find life. Rejoice not that the demons submit to you. Even though, guess what? In Christ, that is your power and authority. Rather rejoice in what God has done for you in Christ. As you go, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And I might add, seek that others might hear the message so that their names might be written there too. The worship team will come back up. We'll sing a final song. A song that is a poignant reminder. It's not our work. It's not our power. It's not our authority, our good looks, our golden tongues, our legislators, or any other reason that we come to know God. It's not by any of those things that anyone else comes to know God. For it's not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God who calls us, who redeems us, and who has demonstrated God's love for us in this, that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us.